I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thank you very much. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the march to new highs and whether the investment committee thinks we can get there or not. Stocks are on the move again today, sitting about 5% now away from a new milestone. Joining me for the hour today, everybody's here at Post 9. Joe Terranova, Jenny Harrington, Jim Labenthal, Brian Belsky, BMO Capital Markets, of course, the chief investment strategist there. Check the markets. We're green across the board. As I said, there's the Dow above 35,000, S&P 500, 45.74, almost one half of 1%. NASDAQ having a pretty good day as well. Um, new 52-week highs. Jimmy, give me the bull. That's what I called you before we came on the air. Uh, so new 52-week highs for all three of the majors. Jonathan Golub, Credit Suisse, raises his price target to 4,700. It's the highest on the street. And you, I see the notes here, look a little less bullish today relative to kind of where we are, where we've come to. And you say it's time to trim some stocks. Yeah, I don't want to give up true? that. I don't want to. Well, yes. Yes. I don't want to give up that name, though. I think it's. Uh, Jimmy like, the Bull? Yeah. I love it. Are you still an Uber bull? I am. I am. But look, let's respect where the market is, right? I mean, I can say that with a chuckle. We can all kind of chuckle and say this market's gone straight up. Did you give the number of days it's gone straight up? I mean, usually you do. It's like seven seven days in a row. Um, You know, we're up 20 percent on the S&P 500 year to date. This will give something back. This does not change my overall bullishness on the economy. It doesn't change the fact that the labor market's strong. We've got supply chain onshoring, infrastructure spending, all that sort of stuff. But we are likely to have a five to seven percent pullback. You know, it may take as long as September, which is normally a very tricky month, uh, or it may happen before then. But you have to have some dry powder ready when that happens. I hate the thing where you write it down and then you say, oh, I'm selling this to buy that. No, I'm going to raise a little bit of cash here. Uh, I I do think it's time to do that. All right. We'll we'll talk in a minute in uh, one place that you're raising that cash. I don't want to do that quite yet. Brian Belsky, I mean, your bull case is 5,050. Your year end target's 4,550. I mean, we're we're right there. So when you hear Jimmy say, look, it's probably time to take a little off the top. What's your response to that? We would agree on a short-term basis. I think, you know, much of what has happened has already happened, right, in terms of the stock market kind of catching up. Um, and I think investors are, are kind of chasing things here a little bit that have not been invested. I think there's other areas of the market to be invested in as the market begins to broaden out here, not just financials, not just other cyclicals, not just small cap. Uh, and I think the summer months could be bumpy. Remember, last August was pretty bad uh, and then heading into the fall. So I think we could get choppy. But well, last but, August was different than this August in terms of sort of where we are in the in the Fed cycle and what we're we're potentially thinking the economy could be relative to what we thought it might do. Yep. Almost a year ago. Yep. Exactly. And so I, I think that we're going to get a, an opportunity. I don't think five to seven percent, maybe three to five percent, because I think there is still an opportunity for investors that have missed this move, Scott, to get in. Kind of number one. Number two, I think people are still way too focused on the market overall and kind of missing the fact that we're in the midst of, I think, one of the greatest stock picking environments that I've seen in well over 10 years because dispersion in terms of where stocks are trading on a performance basis, on an earnings basis, and on a valuation basis are all over the place. That means fundamental bottoms up stock pickers. This is the type of area that you want to be in. Right are, now. 
is, is Joe, is the air getting a little thin, as Jimmy would suggest uh, up here? Now, we don't necessarily have what you would term, you know, animal spirits or this no. euphoria in the market. Market doesn't feel like that. No. But it does feel like it doesn't want to go down and that you do have a, a growing chorus of people who are getting more bullish. And that, to some, is a bit concerning. It, it feels as if the momentum is building to almost go parabolic in a sense. And I think at some point we will go par parabolic. Like and, a blow off top. And yeah, I think that'll be a near term peak. And, and concurrent with that, you'll probably see v the VIX actually rally because people are reaching for calls. <clears throat> um, listen, I, I, I've said uh, numerous times on air over the last several weeks that the third quarter has the highest probability to be the weakest quarter of the four quarters in 2023. But here's a remarkable statistic. Jimmy, what did you say? 6% down, you thought possibly? Five, Five to seven. seven. That, that only gets you? to the 50-day moving average. That is remarkable. The 50-day moving average is at 43.11. The 100 is 41.76. The 200-day moving average is 40.43. So there is a lot of air underneath the market, um, but I do believe any type of significant correction will be greeted with a tremendous amount of buying interest, in particular because we have that mega cap put. Completely what, agree. What's, what's your view, Jenny? So I think we're talking about different things, right? And so I'm listening to all this conversation and everyone's talking about the market. And what's the market that Joe and Jim and Brian are talking about? They're talking about the S&P 500 that has 30% of its weight in seven companies. And I'm thinking about my market, right? My dividend oriented, which is kind of value leaning market. And that's really different. So I haven't, and then when Brian said it's a stock picker's market, and that's because dispersion and valuations are all over the place. So when we're talking about like the market pulling back five to seven or three to five percent, like you know who cares? It's it's all in the same in the same. Yeah, but realm I mean, of you, but you've had you, you've you've had to be in the right quote unquote right part of the market to have had a good first half of the year. Totally. You, ha you have right. to have And had. I haven't been there, right? So if you look at what dividends did this year, dividends were, dividend indices and dividend uh, ETFs and <clears> stuff <throat> were up about 9% at the end of January. And then they had that pullback. So they were kind of flat. I mean, maybe they're up like, you know, two, three percent on the year. Actually, at the end of the quarter, the Dow Jones um, dividend index with high yielding dividend index was down two and a half percent. So now I'm looking at this thing like, OK, I don't really care what the broader market does, because I think the setup for me is fantastic. You think there's going and to so, be a comeback in the, the area that you I do. count as your and wheelhouse? I goes back to Brian's point on dispersion. And so when, when you're saying, is it time to trim, I'm thinking to myself, you know what? I trimmed earlier in the year. I trimmed AbbVie. I sold AbbVie, Chevron, Unum, Navient, Foot Locker. I took money off the table because earlier I moved up. And so this is where it is truly a stock picker's market. And I think there's a ton to do because things aren't moving synchronously, right? They're very asynchronous. So you remember um, in the last month and change, I've added Whirlpool, Stanley, Works, Organon, City, uh, sorry, Crown Castle. I don't even know why I said City. Um, so I listen to the conversation and I think that applies to one piece of the market, which is the S&P 500. If you're in small cap, if you're in value, if you're in dividends, if you're in mid cap, if you're in international, you're playing with something that's different that hasn't had this plus 20% slightly stretchy valuation move. You know, I don't know, Jim, you know, I see you trimming or selling Goldman Sachs. Yeah. So I teased it for a, a moment ago that, that that's where you're looking to take some off the top. When I saw that move, I was like, it's an interesting it's an interesting move to me because there are those who would suggest that now's the time to buy Goldman Sachs, not sell it. Yeah. Right. You're selling it at what, you know, some would suggest is the bottom. Well, take okay. me through it. 
First off, yeah, I mean, this is important to know my personal perspective, which is I bought the stock at the very end of March of 2020. So when you look at that return from 2020 till now, it actually has handily beat the S&P 500. So I've got a big gain here, and I'm, I'm happy to take that gain. I'm not happy with what I see there. Now, we can talk about the macro environment. We can talk about the industry specifics. But it's unassailably true that Morgan Stanley is just whooping the behind of Goldman Sachs. And I don't want to get on the air and defend that. And I don't want to talk to clients and defend why Goldman Sachs and something else. And if we get a pullback, now I've got some dry powder that I can do anything with. Maybe Goldman Sachs gets its act together in a few months, I want to get back into it. Maybe Morgan Stanley pulls back and I get in there, but I have to have a little bit of dry powder here. I do want to make a one more general point here, which is that we are talking about trimming the portfolio overall. This is not a wholesale move into cash. I think that would be foolish. I think, you know, the last nine months have proven that if you make wholesale moves into cash, you run the risk of just being out when the market, because of its own animal spirits, uh, catches a bid here. But see, so, why, why would you, why would you though, I want to, I want to press you a little bit ahead. more on this Goldman move, um, because, you know, if you think you're, you're bullish on the economy, yes, right? So theoretically, if you're bullish on the economy and you're bullish where we are in the cycle, you would then think that there would be a coming pickup in the capital markets type businesses mm-hmm. that Goldman Sachs kicks everybody else's <clears throat> can in, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it's the deal making, which is their bread and butter. Yeah. Um, IPOs, M&A. I don't like If, that's, I don't if like that area is yep. troughed, yeah. why would you want to sell it now? Because it's a market move overall. But to your specific question about Goldman Sachs, I don't like a company that beats on revenues and misses on, on earnings. I don't like that. That screams to me if expenses are, are out of whack. Um, <laughs> let, me be, let me be clear about something. And, and also, look, we have this lingering question about the leadership at the top. I just don't want to be discussing Goldman Sachs personally anymore. Okay, Um, and others can. That's fine. There's plenty of other stocks, Scott, you'll admit, plenty of other stocks for you and I to discuss that we have a lot of fun with. Let me be clear about one thing. I am not underweighting cyclicals here and overweighting technology. I still believe, and this is to what Jenny said, that the cyclicals, which include financials, of which I still have a healthy holding in J.P. Morgan and Citigroup, are going to do well over the long run. But for the next couple of months, to Joe's comments about the third quarter, I totally agree. This is when air pockets form. You know, let me just point out something, too, guys. Can we throw up uh, an intraday on Apple, which is moving right now on some headlines that I see on AI-related reports? Uh, that Apple is apparently building a large language model AI framework, uh, that it's created an internal chat GPT style bot for employees as well. You could see the obvious move in the spike in the stock here. Uh, as anything related to AI developments is sending pretty much any stock that delivers that kind of news higher in what we're witnessing here. So you're almost 200 bucks a share uh, for Apple, which is up 2%. We'll continue to get more on that. Uh, as we have it, but I didn't want to wait any longer to bring you a headline that was moving the biggest stock by market cap in the marketplace. Uh, and it just brings us to, to you know, what's happening with tech yeah, and how it, we're really going to get going in the next few days. So I'm watching it also turns NVIDIA positive on the day as well. Um, there, there, listen, there, there, there's a story, there's, there's enthusiasm, there's optimism surrounding the financially strongest global companies in the world that are funding this innovation, this advancement from artificial intelligence to generative AI. And yes, we're going to learn a lot in earnings about what the contribution is in the near term, but I still think it's an unfolding story over coming quarters where even if there's a stumble here in the current quarter, you have to give them the benefit of a doubt and a free pass. Yeah. 
Um, so you got a new high there, obviously, on, on Apple, which, by the way, gets its price target bumped to 210 today from Bank of America. That was, of course, before this news, which has sent the stock up uh, about 2%. Belsky, um, to you, you know, you, you can let's not go back to Goldman quite yet, but yeah. let's continue this this AI conversation. And, you know, we're going to get Netflix and Tesla. That's really, you know, the curtain going up on tech earnings. Yep. And they really need to deliver um, Apple, especially. I mean, you know, where the, the, the valuations have gone just puts even more pressure on these names, just despite headlines that draw stocks up no, in I, a single I, session. I think so. And you got to remember, too, that I think uh, the key thing that people are missing is that in the beginning of the year, Scott, technology sector earnings for 2023 and 2024 were actually on pace to be below the market. And now all of a sudden they're above the market. So I think people are slow to catch that that fashion. I think number two is that the consumer staples type tech that we've called Apple and Microsoft for a long time can, will, and should be core holdings. Per Jim's um, explanation, when you have these stocks that are up 10, 15% in a quarter and, you know, or a few weeks, it's okay to trim back to your core holding. Just, for, just figure out where you want to be. You want to be in 7 or 8% Apple, 7 or 8% Microsoft. If it, if it goes to 8, 9, 10% of your portfolio, you want to trim a little bit. Sure, That's but, called but here's, portfolio here's the problem. I know that. And it, it's, of course, it makes perfect sense as somebody who manages risk and manages portfolios. Um, but you have so many stocks in the basket of if they've gone up a lot, maybe it's right. time to trim, right? You could name 10 names out of tech alone that have, that have gone up a lot. And the risk is if you're in a FOMO market now where the momentum actually has some gusto behind it, you trim some of those names ahead of their earnings, you risk getting left behind as the train goes to the next stop. But if you're, but if you're trimming and you're talking about a 27 to 28% of your portfolios in tech and you own four or five of the right names, you are going to outperform because you own the right names. Not because you own 30 names, but because you own four or five names in a more concentrated sense. So you can trim on those bigger positions and still win out. But the other thing too is you should be barbelling. You can barbell an NVIDIA with a Cisco or barbell a higher growth with a more value tech as well. So would you go to an equal weight strategy? Because I think that's the biggest question. and We don't talk about that right now. Listen, I run an equal weighted strategy. It's the reason that I'm underperforming the S&P year to date. I'm outperforming momentum, but I'm underperforming the S&P because I'm equal weighted. So in what you're describing, the environment as we move forward, is it time to go to an equal weighted strategy for investors? Well, I think the market's actually telling you that, Joe, over the last six weeks, right? Because especially since in June 1, we've seen participation broadening out. And we've been on record saying, I think March, April was a generational opportunity to buy small cap. I think what's happening is that we're starting to, equity investors are starting to re-engage again. Maverick is re-engaged. So I think through that, they're going to be owning more names across different disciplines. And I think equal weight for the rest of the year actually could be an area that could really outperform. Yeah, but you also don't want to use the analogy or to continue. You don't want to go to Mach 10 and blow yourself up. No, you don't. That's why I think calling for a a blow off top, um, that's difficult to say. Obviously, this is all about momentum. It's in the near term. It's in the near term. But I really, I still think we're in this big, giant, secular bull market. And the next part of the bull market actually started in October. And we were very blessed and fortunate to say in November of last year, we said, October's the low. That's it. Now everybody, all of a sudden, the market's up 20%. We're in a bull market. You call bull markets before they start, not when they've already happened. 
Uh, just real quick, I mean, in, in that bull market, I don't think we ever thought we'd be sitting here having a conversation about reaching all-time highs. We're, what, 5.5% away from it? It almost feels as though, at this point, it's inevitable. And all these price targets that are sitting below at 4,500 to 4,600, they're going to have to raise. I think you might be seeing 5,000, 5,100 as price targets relatively soon. Chasing, but you're only going to get there, Jenny, yeah. if, if areas that have underperformed, like the financials, since we'll go back to the Goldman kind of conversation now, um, actually start to pick up, you know, some of the slack. Um, maybe the stocks have troughed. If you look at the performance of almost every of the, you know, the large banks that have reported, I think almost every single one of them, the stocks at least, were up on the backside of earnings, whether the earnings were tremendous or not. Right. And I think, I think you're really hitting the nail on the head, which is like, we need that other 492. We need the other 493 to, to carry us through this earnings season. I think if I think about what I hope for and dream for from this earnings season, it would be wonderful if it just comes in pretty good, right? If no one has any major blowups, if the top seven or eight stocks don't have major blowups, if the other 492 report pretty well. And to me, I think the best case scenario from this earnings season is to your point, analysts do start to increase their estimates and that just supports the market and staves off this down three to 5% because I so don't you're, you're see- Better than feared is still good enough in your view. Then. I think so. I think, I don't think there's any wonderful scenario of earnings that can suddenly raise, I mean, expectations for this year is still at $220 a share. Like 245 next year. For next year, exactly. And you put in 19 times multiple on 245, and you know where you are. You're basically where we are here. So you need one of two things to prop us higher. You need great earnings, which seems unlikely to get past 245, or you need a recalibration of valuation. And so I think a great earnings season this year, like, hopefully just puts a floor under where we go because I can't see any version that bumps magically earnings to 260. Sure, but but based on Jim, where we are now. There are those who argue that at 19 times, basically what the S&P 500 is trading at far above its historical average, that it's too rich, that valuations have gotten too stretched based on where uh, earnings are now. Forget about where you think they, they might. No one really knows what, where earnings are going to be next year. You know, our friend Ed Yardeni wrote about this this morning, and he said, and you know what I'm going to say, right? If you strip out the top seven stocks, you know what that multiple goes to? 16 and a half. Um, that's the number. Now, uh, look, I'm, I'm underweight those top seven. It's hurt. It has hurt. But there's no way. To the point you're making, Scott, no way I'm buying Microsoft. Well, I own, already own it, but not adding to Microsoft or buying NVIDIA here. Frankly, and this is an unpopular opinion, but the price action today in Apple to what you just reported and yesterday by Microsoft at 1130 a.m. Microsoft oh, wait, was up 5%, right, so on that on that AI headline. Go ahead. And I'll let I'd, you finish. I'm telling you, I don't think that's healthy. And and this is based on decades of experience. Uh, that is what a blow off top looks like. Somebody just says AI and you're up 5% when it's already a two or three trillion dollar market cap company. That is not thoughtful investing. And there's no way you can convince me that it's thoughtful investing. It is FOMO, which is emotional. It is people just throwing money at the markets that only lasts so long. Ultimately, at the end of the day, you want fundamentals to support which is frankly where Jenny and I see a lot of fundamental support outside of the top of the market. You don't you don't look Brian at what's going you know going on like what Jimmy says and say it's looking a little thin up up here. You don't sound like you do. No, it's a little bit too much too fast, but if you sit across from a from a retail or high net worth client you say sell, they're not going to come back. Uh, and especially given all the still the fear in the headlines uh, that are still 
massively predominant. So what we would say is that the upside from here, at least on a near-term basis, is probably limited, but our 50-50 bull case with respect to the S&P 500 is looking more and more likely. So Joe, you own Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. So we get Netflix tonight, we get Tesla tonight. Those really are the, the starters of, of tech, a part of the Magnificent Seven. Uh, stocks that have really had a, a great a run here. What, what are your expectations? How good does it have to yeah, be? Yeah, I mean, Netflix? obviously, I'm more focused on Netflix. I think, you know, certainly we're going to hear that subscriber growth was strong given the password crackdown and the ad tier uh, introduction. So I, I, I think you've had new subscribers for Netflix. I think they're going to be satisfied with the content that they're being greeted with. I personally think the content and the documentaries are unbelievable right now on Netflix relative to the other streaming services. And I think this is a stock that has reestablished strong momentum. And guess what? It actually is a quality stock because the free cash flow continues to grow. And the free cash flow guidance for 2023 tonight, that's going to be incredibly important. Are we talking about four and a half billion dollars for Netflix. That was unimaginable three or four years ago. Let's not forget it was a $700 stock, right? It sure was. So, you know, where is it? It's 475. So it still has, it's had a great run here, but it's got a long way to go to get back to, to where it once was. What do you think is riding on these reports tonight for just the sort of general market perspective, even though you don't own them? Yeah. But they matter to everything. They matter just, to just everything. Just given where we've, we've gone. And that's where I go to. I really hope. You said something before. You said where valuations have gotten to puts a lot more pressure on these stocks. And we always think about the idea of you know, valuations overshooting the fundamentals. Let's just think about Meta, right? Which isn't reporting now. But, but Meta was 250, well, it's a 250% increase since last November. That business isn't 250% better since last November. Perception's 250% better. And when perception moves that quickly to the upside, I get nervous. So I'm so hopeful that as we hear Tesla and Netflix, that, that the share prices are in line, right, with the perception that's developed and that they just don't tank because I think it could get really ugly. And when you're talking about FOMO, FOMO cuts both ways, right? It can drive something up really fast and it can tank something really fast too. And I think that we're, we're kind of on a knife's edge right now. Like valuations on some of these are pretty, pretty rich. Yeah. So, so I'm nervous is how I feel. I'm, I'm looking at a tweet from our Dom Chu who says the current, oh, we've got to get it back, hang on. The current implied stock price moves post earnings uh, via options pricing for Netflix is plus or minus eight and a half percent. And for Tesla, it's a plus or minus 6.8. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be exciting to see the results and see, yep. you know, moves one way or the other that seem uh, somewhat dramatic. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, what uh, one of our committee members calls a sleeping giant, we're going to run through a few catalysts that could wake one legacy tech stock up. Jenny owns it. We're back on the half in just two. We're back. IBM is set to report earnings after the bell today. Shares underperforming the broader market this year after having a pretty good year last year. Christina Partzinevelis joins us now from the Nasdaq with the catalyst that could change its course. Christina. 
The first catalyst, it's $4.6 billion acquisition of Aptio, a software that helps firms manage IT spend. But it's important to note it hasn't closed this deal just yet. The second narrative they may push on the call, it's new subscription-based AI service for enterprises called Watson X. It was only launched just last week or made available, so it could take a while for sales to come in, but both are potential reoccurring streams of revenue. IBM's strong suit, considering 50% of total revenues just as of last quarter was reoccurring. But investors will actually want to hear more about improved growth guidance for its open-sourced Red Hat software subsidiary. Red Hat helps IBM carve a spot in the hybrid cloud between the public and private cloud markets. And so that is seen as bread and butter. The earnings results, though, are expected to be flat weakness in infrastructure business, considering it's cyclical. We're also expecting weakness in its consulting business. It seems like even job postings for consulting has gone down. The hope, though, is that the software business will pick up the slack. If it doesn't, could see a negative reaction. Yeah, stay with me um, and let's engage a shareholder. Uh, Jenny, you own IBM. You, you heard Christina lay it out pretty clearly what maybe the street is looking for here after what's been a disappointing year after a good last year. A great last year. So I don't want to give them too much, too much grief for having no, a disappointing no, no. Yeah, year and you, and you should, and, and rightfully um, so. But I think this is the thing with, with IBM. IBM to me is where I, can, where I think I can produce solid, sustainable returns. And everything that you hear Christina say is incremental. So the, um, the Aptio acquisition, it says it, should, or it could contribute 2% to growth to their software segment. Well, the software segment's 28% of their business. So that's great, but it's not like a total game changer. AI and Watson, the data and AI segment is 25% of their business. So if that grows a little bit more, that's great. To me, this is a sustainable company with sustainable earnings. And what I, the only thing I worry about here is that if management tries to get on the like, holy smokes, all you need to do is say and goose AI and then the share price goes up like 30 or 50 or 60%, I hope that that doesn't happen. Because I would much rather own a company with a reasonable valuation, with a five and change percent dividend yield that can provide me reasonable, sustainable growth where I don't then need to ride an emotional roller coaster and make short-term decisions. I don't think they will, but just everything we see here is <clears throat> incrementally positive. We've seen that for the past couple years, frankly, and I expect it to, to continue. You got to believe, Christina, that they're going to talk about uh, Watson, Watson X, right, as it relates to AI and what this company's ambitions are when everybody else is making leaps ahead. The interesting thing is that IBM is not going after uh, competing Microsoft with ChatGPT or Bard with Google. Instead, it's going to cater to the B2B business. So this is a strong point for them. They're going to go after a smaller market. Uh, to Jenny's point, though, the way that you're arguing your, your, your call for this, it seems like you're pretty defensive. You're talking about growth, but you're pretty much laying out you know, a strong dividend yield, a strong free cash flow, uh, and the money that is there and reoccurring revenue. But overall, what is the growth? growth potential for this company if both of these streams, whether it be Watson, whether it be Aptio, whether it be uh, Red Hat, if none of those three come through, where's the growth for IBM? I don't know. I mean, historically, they've grown collectively, right? If you look at the different segments, you've got software that grew in the 8% range. You have um, infrastructure that was 10, other, you know, other parts lag, but collectively, it's like a high single-digit growth rate. So I don't, I don't know, and you might know it better than I do, Christina, on where the growth, what drives the growth, but I think they just incrementally, like one works, one doesn't. The AI doesn't need to be the winner-take-all kind of perception that NVIDIA had. It can just be, hey, this is good for B2B. That's going to yeah. incrementally grow revenues. I don't think it needs to be home run hitting. I think they can hit singles and doubles. There's no expectations in the share price. Exactly. So then we won't see much movement then. Okay, no but in this market, if I can get 
on average a 5% yield and I don't know, 5% growth on the share price over the next year because they're incrementally adding, that works for me as an investor. It's not greedy, it's sustainable. I don't need a plus 80 or 100% move in the shares. That's Christina. true. A defensive play, though. You're, you're <laughs> describing a defensive play right there. And, and, and if we think that there's going to be some more turbulence in the market, why not own IBM with that dividend yield of 4.91%? Yeah, well, let's see what happens uh, with the earnings. We're, we'll be paying attention to those as well. Thank you so much, Christina Parks for that. We appreciate it. Um, other legacy, quote-unquote, legacy tech names. Cisco upgraded today. JP Morgan. Jimmy, you used to own IBM, right? Um, until you couldn't take it anymore. <laughs> but we have different objectives, right? I couldn't take it anymore. You do own Cisco and you do own Qualcomm, which was added to J.P. Morgan's analyst focus, yeah. uh, focus list today. The price target raised to 159 from 145. That's on QCOM, the bottom there. Yeah, uh, different different companies, of course, but you're right to call them legacy tech. I would also call them value tech, which is just to say that they have very forgiving valuations, in part because of a lot of doubts over the last year or so about their businesses. Qualcomm, its smartphone sales that have underwhelmed for the last year, year and a half. Um, that is likely to come out of its trough. It's, it's overdue to come out of its trough. The analyst talks about China perhaps picking up smartphone sales, but globally there's reason to think that you can only go so long without upgrading your phone and that the cycle's about to turn up. Even if it doesn't, they've got a very good automotive business, a good uh, internet of technology business, and the valuation, again, very forgiving, both from an earnings basis, a peg ratio basis, good dividend yield. Uh, so this is very similar to your IBM in that regard. I, I think this is just a very easy to stock to own at this point. Joe T, you got Cisco in the Joe T. Yeah, and that has the, uh, of the legacy, the value tech, I think that has the highest probability of building momentum and moving forward fundamentally orders increased in the, in the prior quarter, but it's, it seems to be all kind of tracking the opportunity that occurred from Oracle. Think about Oracle and what we used to talk about Oracle as, which was more a legacy tech, a value tech, and now we've seen a significant rise in Oracle. So can it follow that trajectory? Cisco, to me, has the highest probability of doing that. What's interesting is when we talk about IBM and think about Warren Buffett stepping away from it, where did he step towards? He stepped towards HPQ. They have 12% ownership, which is the largest ownership in that stock, and that stock's been moving higher. Belsky? You, got, you own Cisco, right? I own Cisco in three portfolios. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trademark. And Qualcomm? And Qualcomm in three portfolios. I'm going to trademark a phrase. They're Jenny Tech. That's what they are. <laughs> They're Jenny Tech. I like it. I like but it. Cisco Cisco's a, a dividend growth monster. You know, cash flow yields above the dividend yield, positive earnings growth. Who would have ever thought 20 years ago would be right. talking about John Chambers and go, go, go Cisco. <laughs> now all of a sudden it's a cash flow and dividend machine. It's just a flat out anti-recession play. It yeah. really is that simple. Cisco? It is. Cisco. It's enterprise spending. Everybody sold this stock in the last year because enterprise spending is going to go down in a recession. Guess what? If you don't have a recession, what happens to enterprise spending? It's really that simple. Okay. Uh, Pippa Stevens has the headlines for us. Hi, Pippa. Hey, Scott. Russia launched its second consecutive air attack on the Ukrainian port of Odessa. A Ukrainian official described the attack as hellish, but said the port will continue exporting grain. The attack supports Russia's retaliation pledge for the Crimea bridge explosion, an offense Russia says was led by Ukraine. U.S. climate envoy John Kerry met with Chinese officials to restart climate talks. The U.S. and China are both experiencing scorching summers with China hitting record temperatures. 
Kerry's trip focused on issues like deforestation and reducing methane emissions. He emphasized the importance of climate cooperation between the two countries, something that was once a bright spot in U.S.-China diplomacy. And Israeli President Isaac Herzog addressing Congress in the last hour amid tension with some progressive Democrats who did not back a resolution declaring strong support for Israel. Herzog called the U.S. Israel's greatest partner and friend. Herzog and Vice President Kamala Harris are expected to announce a new $70 million investment in climate technologies split evenly between the two countries. The Halftime Report returns right after this. Welcome back. Uh, you see green across the board, including for AT&T. It hasn't been that way lately, though. The stock's getting a big bump today, near 7.5%, as you see. It did have its lowest close in 30 years, Jenny. Awesome. Right? It's this <laughs> lead cable issue, right. concerns about liability, what a number could be. AT&T said on, on Tuesday that it, quote, in a filing, represents less than 10% of its copper footprint of roughly 2 million sheath miles of cable, the overwhelming majority of which remains in active service. So what, what's your take here on the stock? So I think as investors, we're always making decisions with incomplete information. And you need to figure out how much of that incomplete information you're willing to act upon. So when I woke up last Wednesday morning and read this, I was like, oh, are you kidding me? And immediately I started thinking about Halliburton and asbestos and 3M and the PFOS and earplugs and Johnson and Johnson and the talc. And I immediately thought, is this what this is going to turn into? And should I sell it right now here today before I have any more information? But then I thought, here's the difference between AT&T and those three. When this potential future huge litigation came out, this stock was already trading as if it was worthless. And it doesn't have a AAA balance sheet. And what those other three, when, when, these, you, know, when you heard, first heard about the asbestos or the talc, they all had really premium valuations and they had AAA balance sheets, which the class action attorneys love to go after, just like fresh blood for them. So I thought to myself, okay, the stock's already so depressed, hang in there, wait, try to get more information. They didn't put out a press release right away, and I was really stressed about that. So when I saw this this morning, I'm like, okay, phew, at least they're talking and trying to quantify it. Yeah. And what I want to do is I want to wait for the earnings call and just start to quantify it, and then I'm going to make a decision the, the if street, I hold sell. Just, I'm sorry to interrupt. The yeah. street doesn't really know what to make of it, it feels like. No. It got downgraded today at Argus, right? They're talking about new material risk. That's a quote from their, their note today from the, the Wall Street Journal investigation, whereas Deutsche Bank reiterates a buy. Says we don't see it as a $34 billion problem. Right. And as, I the, as to your point, as the destruction in market cap would imply. Right. And I think that's the thing. Like, if you think about the cables, and I read back, which is I think until 19, in the 1960s, they were, that was just protocol, right? They wrapped the copper cables in lead and they buried them and they put them like up high on telephone poles. And so they've already removed a lot. But they also said, in, in the journal article that over the years they've done studies where sometimes removing the cable from these riverbeds or lake beds is way more um, detrimental to the environment than leaving them in place. And so I don't really know how that all plays out, but it was nice this morning to have it, to have it start to be quantified. The other thing is too, like if you think about 3M, where PFOS is still going into the water and they say, okay, we'll stop that. These are legacy assets. It's not like IB, sorry, it's not like AT&T's been wrapping things in, in lead, you know, in the era that we all know how bad that is and doing it today and just turning a blind eye. So these are super old assets that they bought. So it's going to be hard to figure out what a legal, 
what a legal liability could be, the removal of them seems completely manageable. You have to believe that at least the story itself is going to be a bit of an overhang right. uh, and for that's a while. Really and again, this is about. AT&T's side of the story that you got today, mm-hmm. uh, but probably to be continued. I think so. But it's a respite for some of the selling right. that's taken place consistently in the name. Jenny, thank you for that. All right, Mike Santoli, he's up next with his Midday Word. We're back after this. back to the half. Senior Markets commentator Mike Santoli joins us now with his midday word. Um, the importance, you know, of Netflix and Tesla to where we are now uh, is, are you thinking about those most especially today or what's on your mind? Yeah, I actually do think there's something a little bit different as we get into this phase of earnings season, which is we're starting to hear from the companies whose stocks have really run a fair bit. They haven't been on the outs like the banks and some of the old economy areas. So there's a lot of expectations built into them. Arguably, the formal consensus on things like Netflix might be a little stale. So there's already some buy side expectation that we're going to get a beat. I don't think they're going to steer the entire NASDAQ or the rest of the market just based on their reactions. But there is a little more of a kind of spring loaded uh, factor in here just because we are, you know, kind of getting stretched. Everybody's pointing out the fact the market has helpfully gotten overbought and stayed overbought. That is a characteristic of a strong trend, but it still means that you might be wound a little bit tight on the reaction. So we'll see how the market accepts those. You know, you've been talking a lot about, you know, really looking at signs of too much froth, euphoria, animal spirits, the fear of missing out, really leading people into this market in a bigger way. And then we have Jim Labenthal on the show today who says even for him, a real bull in this market, it's getting a little uneasy and he thinks we could have a 5 to 7% pullback, and he's trimming. So at least there's right. some of that out there. There's plenty of that out there. I think it's fascinating because as soon as things start to look like, you know, people are feeling it and they want to play the upside and, you know, they're buying call options, the put call ratio is declining, everyone sees that when it's happening. So it's not just that people kind of leave their worries aside. It's that it creates new ones. Uh, so I think the too far, too fast call is, is hard to distinguish from a bull market acting like a bull market. There's often a belief phase, but it, uh, it is going to go uh, it is going to go overshoot at times. Five to seven percent can happen and, you know, any time for any reason or none at all. So I think that's the way you have to think about yeah, it. Yeah, which we will. Mike, thanks as always. I'll see you on Closing Bell in a bit. That's Mike Santoli. Next, we turn our focus to a few key earnings reports on deck beyond the marquee names that we've already talked about. We'll do it next. Let's do some more earnings, uh, get you set up for some more reports. SL Green, after the bell today, too. You own that? Yep. Jenny so Harrington. This, this is so interesting, and it goes back to the conversation we had in the beginning, which is can the other stocks sustain us? So if we look back to last quarter, this stock was in the dumps. I mean, the thing's up 38% in the last three months. It's um, up five and change percent on the year. And you know what they own? They own prime class A New York City office. The difference and the reason it's up now is in perception. Because if you look back to the last earnings quarter, they actually had a great quarter. They beat. I expect they'll do that again. And they're out there on their earning calls, like pulling their 
hair out saying, hey, people, our occupancy is still 90%. We have the best assets. We're raising rents. We're in great shape. Why are you not giving us any value for the stock? So I think they're probably going to just do that again. The difference being people listen. Hopefully the shares go up a lot. They Jimmy, deserve to. Jimmy, Las Vegas Sands today, too. Uh, Bjorn Wynn. Yeah, and you know, Wynn's had a good year, but the last several months it's just been in this range, sort of 105 to 115. And the reason for that, we know, is because of the fears that Macau, the China reopening, isn't isn't going as well. In the meantime, Las Vegas itself is doing great, but to Las Vegas Sands, which is all Macau and Singapore, we're going to get some insight into Macau tonight from Las Vegas Sands. I actually think it's going to be pretty positive from what we've seen of the gross gaming revenue uh, from Macau and various commentary from the company. So, Brian, you're also going to get United tonight. I bring it up because if you're looking for confirmation signals for the rally, uh, people are going to point to transports and say new 52 week high there. So obviously United plays a role there. What, what do you think about this group here? Well, we've owned Delta for a long time. We think Delta by far from an operational and fundamental basis is the best stock. But and clearly, you know, that there there's a scarcity proposal on the airlines. You can't get a seat. And I still think that the consumer is dealing with uh, let's call it CPTSD, complex PTSD from, from COVID, and they want to live, and guess where they're living, on airplanes. Jimmy, so you, got, you have Delta in Alaska as well. You don't, I, have, you don't have United. Uh, I don't have United. Uh, I think Delta and Alaska are the creme de la creme in the industry. But there's something that, uh, Brian, you just pointed out. I just want to, it, it, the business is coming back, and it's coming back in a unique way, this be-leisure travel. And you see it if you're on planes, that they've created this class between economy and business that's really geared towards the be-leisure, the combination business and leisure traveler. The airlines are being smart. They're making money where they can, and the demand is there. Uh, I like the sector. Jenny? In terms of transports, I mean, you do have JetBlue from the airlines. Uh, Uber, we've talked a lot about on the show, including yesterday, which was finally above the IPO price, right? I think yesterday was like 47 bucks and change. I'm not sure where it is now. but. Um, what else do you have here? GXO? GXO and XPO. XPO. And both of those have had huge runs. And they're a little surprising to us why they've run up so much, given that we see the, we see the consumer weakening and we see retail sales slowing down a little bit. So why are these stocks up so much? We're thinking about trimming them, but we're not there yet. Yeah. All right. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades ahead. Following the Halftime Report podcast, what are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. All right, closing bell, 3 o'clock Eastern. Hope you'll join me then. We're going to count you down to those big earnings, Netflix, Tesla, and the others that we've talked about on our program today. Alex Kantowitz, Dan Ives will be with us. Julia Borston, Alicia Levine. Hope you'll, hope you'll join me. I look forward to seeing all of you then. Um, Belsky, the, as we show, I want to show Goldman Sachs, too, uh, just to continue our conversation on where we were on the banks. There's a stock near 1.5%. Maybe the thought is they kitchen synced it, stocks troughing. Most underappreciated area of the market in your oh, mind? Financials. Totally. 
You know, Jim and I text and talk. You were early you then know. before when you said financials, financials, early. financials to me. You yes. remember that? Oh, I remember. And you love <laughs> oh, I to remind me. <laughs> no, uh, listen, I think um, you don't want to own everything in financials. You want to play a theme. And I think the theme for the banks are the really big and the really small. Everything in between, no way. Why? Because they don't have scale. So then take that scale theme to other businesses and includes broker dealers and includes asset managers. But I think really big picture that nobody wants to talk about, and I'll talk about it. <laughs> Financials and banks cut people. We've had a reduction in force across Wall Street and Bay Street. That puts the bottom in because banks always cut at the bottom and they add at the top. And so if you're an employee within financial services and you made it through this, you're in a good spot right now. All right. That's a good you, point. Want to, uh, you want to give me a final trade while you're at it? Stiefel Financial. Okay. Outperform the XLF, broker deal with business. It has become the place to be if you don't want to be at Morgan Stanley and don't want to be at Merrill anymore. Morgan Stanley, whose final trade is that? Oh, that's mine. I want to be in Morgan Stanley. <laughs> uh, listen, it's clear to me when you think about leadership in companies that right now, James Gorman and the management team at Morgan Stanley can be mentioned in the same breath as James Diamond. The confidence to come out yesterday and say what they did about trading, investment banking, they're going to raise capital through debt issuance. Morgan Stanley all day, phenomenal management team. Jimmy? Jimmy the Bull, City must be you. City's me. And listen, I'm, I'm with uh, Brian on the financials here. And, and the money I take out of Goldman might be recycled back into a financial in short order if the market corrects a little bit. But City has come back from that ridiculous response to good earnings last week. Uh, they'll get expenses under control, cheap stock buying back shares. Okay. And Jenny? Crown Castle. They own cell towers and small cell networks. I added it a month ago. It was down 5% the other day on a industry-wide downgrade. You, you can buy it where I bought it a month ago with a 5.5% yield. All right. Good stuff. I'll see everybody on Closing Bell. The exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer.